Welcome to the podcast of data and analytic in business. We will learn from the leading industry experts using data and analytics to solve the problems and create values in practice. We will also learn where the industry is heading to and how data and analytics will shape the industry in the future. Most importantly, how they are preparing their business for digital transformation and disruption in the future. I'm your host, Jason Tan, and thank you for listening. In this episode, we have Anastasia Lang. She is the founder and CEO of CreativeX, an AI-based creative analytic company based in London and New York. Anastasia and I started the podcast on the topic of building a distributed team and remote working. She shared with me of her learning from the experience since they built up their second office, which is now based in New York. One thing we will certainly agree on building a remote team is it really opens up the pool of talent that one can assess. We then talk about how Anastasia started CreativeX, and it is quite a story. It was started when they tried to solve an internal problem, which is about finding out the best performing creative and why it performed, as they use this creative asset for the e-commerce business. Armed with this deep understanding about the problem that many marketer and e-commerce face, Anastasia pivoted to start developing CreativeX. This is where I learned more about creative analytics, which I must admit is rather new to me. It is about bringing a data-driven and analytic approach into your digital creative asset. Essentially, as Anastasia explained, creative analytics can act as a layer of quality control on your millions of creative assets. Where knowledge is shared and consistency is across the board. More than that, it also cross-check with other data point of the performance advertising, such as the CPC, CPM, and CTR. And with creative analytics, you can take the guesswork out of your marketing asset but pass on those learning to everyone. Whether you are a digital marketing agency or work as an in-house marketer and designer. I think this is something that you may want to consider in adopting into your workflow. If you are a chief marketing officer with a global or regional presence where brand consistency across multiple jurisdictions is a priority, I suggest reaching out to Anastasia and Creative Eggs as they may have a solution for your problem. If you have any question for Anastasia or myself, make sure you send us an email or message on LinkedIn. This episode is sponsored by DDA. If you are looking to embed analytics directly into your business frontline, please reach out. I'll share with you the framework I use to develop various analytic platforms throughout the year. Last but not least, Make sure you click the subscribe button before the interview starts so you will be the first to be informed on the latest episode on how business leaders run a high-performance organization using data analytics in multiple industry. I am your host, Jason Ten. Thank you for listening. Good morning, Natasha. Welcome to the Analytics Show podcast. Welcome, welcome. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's six in the morning here, and I'm very excited to be talking about analytics at this time of day. And people think I'm kidding, but I'm really not. I'm very fired up to be here. 
six o'clock in the morning in Great Britain now, and you're still full of energy. I totally respect of that. Now let's get started. <laughs> uh, now for my research, I found that you love to live a nomadic lifestyle and and have lived in Vietnam, Hungary, Russia, France, England, and US. Now share with us about that. What what inspired you to choose that lifestyle and What exactly do you like about that? Sometimes lifestyles get imposed on you. So I wish it was something that I could say, hey, this was a conscious decision I made. I think what had happened was my family, my family's Russian and we left Russia in the early 90s, right? As the USSR was starting to crumble. And that led to a series of moving every two to three years to different countries as, you know, my parents were following their career and kind of making a name for themselves. So to your point, we spent time in Vietnam, Hungary, Bahrain. I was exposed to a lot of different cultures, a lot of different languages, a lot of different behaviors. And as I grew older, it became easier for me to actually move and put myself in a new environment rather than stay in one place. I would find that every two to three years, some sort of unease would set in where I would feel very bored just being in the same place. So then I started to replicate that for myself. So at university, I decided I couldn't kind of stay in one place for four years. So I ended up spending almost a year in France. And then after I graduated from university, I moved to California, spent some time in California, then moved to London. And at that point, I remember having this very distinctive decision where About two years in London, I felt myself getting that itch again, you know, that itch to want to go somewhere else. Um, but I realized for me, it was actually harder to stay than it was to leave. So I, I forced myself to sort of stay and live through the stage when the novelty of a new environment is gone, right? And you kind of have to adapt to a city in a different way. But I think now I, I sort of live the best of both worlds because I split my time between New York and London. And so I constantly get to go back between these two places And while they're both very familiar to me, they still give me a constant state of change because those two cities are always changing. Right. I was going to ask if you were planning to build your company in a fully distributed way so you can actually really travel around the world and then work whenever you want, wherever you want. <laughs> yeah, it's a great question, right? Because I think I talk to people now for whom this idea of wanting to live in a different place every month or live somewhere that's not known for being a business hub is very real. And I think we're now at the first time where that's actually becoming accepted. As a company, we still haven't figured out what we're doing. So we know we're never going to force people to be in an office. We know that much, but we haven't quite been able to go the remote only route either. So we're sort of in this hybrid camp, right? And what we're seeing actually, interestingly, you know, again, it's so early is there's sort of waves of it. So in the summer, everyone wants to be remote because they just want to go work out of Tuscany or the Caribbean <laughs> or wherever they are. And then there are points where people kind of come back to a central hub and they want an office when they're there. So, you know, the jury's still out, but I love cities. I want to be in a city. I can't really be in something that is not a city, but I, I like the ability to be able to go away, right? And still know that I'm working and still be productive, even if I'm not in the same physical location as my team. I started to build up part of my team to be fully distributed. And I am still trying to get a whether it will work for me. But I think one thing for sure though, from hiring perspective, I certainly think that I have more option. I have 
more different places to look at. Obviously, it means that I probably have to spend uh, more money on the advertising job board, but at least I feel like it's giving me more option to look at the people who are not in Australia, but they actually could do really amazing. Yeah. Yes. I think what I struggle with there is, and I agree, right? Once you decide to open up geographic boundaries, the the people you can work with opens up and you stop being restricted by these very tangible things. Like, are you in New York? Are you willing to move to New York? And you can pretty much have a conversation with anyone. I think the thing I struggle with is how do you build culture and rapport and trust when you haven't had those same interactions? And I think what I found is, and it's been amazing, right? I would say about two thirds of our team joined during COVID. So I never met them in person. And with some of them, that trust building happens very quickly, right? Because like, what is trust? Trust is kind of consistency over time, right? And so, and then I met them in person for the first time when I went to New York. And it was kind of like seeing someone in three-dimensional view for the first time after only seeing them in 2D. And so the trust thing I actually feel is okay. The culture of the company, I think is we haven't been able to figure out how do you really maintain a culture if you never expect each other to meet in person. And I don't know the answer to that. I don't know the answer for the culture yet, but I suppose what I was hoping to achieve should the revenue allow is that we probably will meet at least four or five times a year at an offsite at a, some amazing location. That is probably one thing. On the level of the trust, though, I must admit, I initially struggled with it quite a lot. But I know I kept telling myself that from the experience of working in the corporate, large corporate in the past, know that sitting in the office doesn't mean that you actually work. <laughs> right? Absolutely. So it really comes out to what does it mean that if you see people sitting in the office, does it really mean that they work? No, it doesn't. It really comes out to the trust. And then that trust has to build up consistently throughout a period of time. And I think that is something that I'm getting way, way, way more comfortable. And I and even for some of those non-facing employees, they actually can choose to work anytime they like. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I think for me, it's a question of productivity as well. So one of the things that, that we've seen is there's some kinds of productivity that's really gone up, right? Because you don't have your commute, you don't fuff about, you come into work, et cetera. And there's a cost to that, right? Which I've seen with some of, some of my younger teammates where, if their office and their bedroom are one and the same, those lines between work and personal really bleed into one. The ability to mentally disconnect from your work is, is not there. And that's not, not great as well. But then on the other hand, I find that when I do go into an office and I go into an office about one to two days a week now, there is also a productivity that's very difficult to replicate online in terms of those very quick conversations that you have that really unblock major issues. Or, you know, you overhear someone talking about something and you're able to very quickly contribute to that conversation and sort of massively move things along. And I don't know how you replicate that in a remote first or remote primary work environment. But that is one element of productivity that we haven't quite been able to bring to sort of the remote world. I really think that hybrid is going to be the way going forward, because now that a lot of people have a taste of working from home, more people are going to demand for it. And I, I somehow think that that perhaps is the turning point of for the company, co-working space company like WeWork. <laughs> 
<laughs> now, thank you so much for sharing your thought about the working remotely and building the team. That was a great conversation. I want to talk a little bit more about your company, Creative X. Tell us about the story of your founding the company and your role at Creative X. Yes, so Creative X was founded through a happy accident. Basically, I had spent about five years at Google. I left Google to create an e-commerce business in 2012, only to realize three years later that the e-commerce business was not working. So I'd raised money, taken actually investment from all of my old managers at Google, and was building this business, which was just not going to be successful. But I was so embarrassed and so ashamed to sort of go back and tell these people who really trusted me with their capital that I was not able to make it work. That I and the team at that time were trying to do anything and everything to get that business to really take off. And as an e-commerce business, obviously we relied a lot on imagery and video, and so we started realizing that imagery and video was so important to how consumers made decisions about our products. But we couldn't understand what was it about some images and videos that resonated, and others that looked very similar to us that didn't. And we were at that point, you know, a team of engineers and very analytical people, and so we loved that we make these like data-driven decisions about everything. But we couldn't make these decisions about imagery and video in the same way. And so, long story short, we started experimenting for ourselves, building some internal tools that tried to essentially break down everything that was contained in image or video and tie those things back to marketing performance to look for statistically validated patterns between the creative decisions we were making and the impact we were having. And that started to get the company to grow. The first business, which was called Hatch, and basically we went out to fund. We were able to kind of turn that business around a little bit. We started fundraising for that company, only to have a number of investors point out that the much bigger problem we were solving was in some of the internal tools that we built to turn that business around. And so uh, I wish I had a story that was like, "Hey, I saw this market opportunity, and we went after it, and all of that." But that's just not the reality. The reality is. We had a business that wasn't working. We were trying to make it work. We built internal tools for ourselves, only to realize that those internal tools were the business, and eventually pivoted the company to focus on what is now CreativeX. Well, Slack is one of those examples that you just described that become a multi-billion-dollar company. So I, think... <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> and, and... Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> so I don't think that is a story that you should be ashamed of. In fact, that is a valid, a good story because it is actually solving your own problem, right? That that actually solve a lot more for a lot more people. I wanted to point out though is that I have tried e-commerce before. I ran it for a couple of years. It's extremely, extremely tough. Very, very tough. I think the most challenging part that I find is how do you convince people to buy, and then how do you deal with all the return? <laughs> It's frustrating. I sometimes I blame Jeff Bezos for that because he's making returning too easy, so everyone is returning. <laughs> yes, I think I found e-commerce a very difficult business too. And obviously, when you make it work, it can be a great business. But the things that we struggled with were the margins are really quite low, and so. Either you run it as a lifestyle business, or if you want any meaningful degrees of growth, then you are on the investment train for a very long time, right? So, and and this is actually one of the other insights that we had is once we started to get 
our e-commerce site to work and we were showing profitable unit economics after the customer's first purchase, because of the margins, the amount of volume, transaction volume we needed to have the site be able to sustain the team was absurd. And, you know, a lot of businesses deal with that, but they also go through years and years and years of constant capital investment and fundraising. And we got to a point where we also wanted to have a business that where we had a little bit more control, where investment was a want and not a need, where there was a way to continue growing the business and have the business survive, especially when things like COVID happened without always relying on someone else to give you money. And we could not find a way to do that with the e-commerce business that we had. Sometimes I wonder that the dominant of Amazon, does it actually stop people to wanting to start <laughs> e-commerce? Like for example, I mean, anyone who tried to do another search engine would be called crazy, right? Anyone tried to do another Facebook would be called crazy. To some extent, I think e-commerce, which is so dominant by Amazon, not just purely from, from the sales perspective, but for, for the end-to-end, for fulfillment, to ordering, inventory, et cetera, et cetera, is completely dominant. I really think it's so hard to, to compete with Jeff or Amazon. It is. You know, and, and as a founder of fundraising, it becomes a really frustrating question because inevitably, at some point in the conversation, if you're building an e-commerce business, you will get a version of how are you going to compete with Amazon? And if Amazon is not in the category you're in, the question will be, let's say Amazon goes into this category. How are you going to compete with it? And I used to find it very frustrating because if Amazon had been asked that question, then they wouldn't be here today, obviously, either, right? But the flip side of it is I, I understand it now. You know, I, I really have a lot more appreciation for that question because especially in e-commerce, either you have to have a good that is almost exclusive to your e-commerce business that cannot be easily replicated by everyone else, or there has to be some sort of operational advantage that you have as a business, right? Like the business that we were building on the e-commerce side was a customization business. So what we were hoping to do was create a marketplace where everything could be customized for you, like an Amazon size marketplace, but where every product was only a starting point for how you could tweak it to make it exactly what you wanted. I think the fundamental miscalculation in building that business is most people don't care. So when you look at the most successful e-commerce businesses, it's ultimately about having something that's good enough and that's, you know, frankly affordable, right? And if I had to do that business all over again, I think there is obviously room for customization, but I would have probably built it as a set of B2B tools rather than a a marketplace that relied on bringing both the suppliers and the buyers together. Obviously, that first-hand understanding of the e-commerce and, like you say, the creativity side of it give you the unfair advantage of what you do at the Creative X now. Now, without giving away the trade secret or in whatever way, would you please describe what is this creative and analytic technology used by CreativeX to our listeners? Yes. So fundamentally, the point of CreativeX and our technology is to help brands achieve consistency, efficiency, and effectiveness in their creative production methods. And what we mean by that is a lot of brands have gone through, as part of sort of the digital transformation, which I, I say in air quotes, 
brands are relying a lot more on imagery and video to get their message across. Most brands have gone through a cycle where they're now producing five to 10 X the amount of visual content that they did a couple of years ago. And that journey has meant that as they've gone on this process of producing a lot more content, a lot of the standards have eroded the ability to leverage best practices, the ability to learn and apply those learnings to any new future piece of content that you're producing, the ability to be consistent, the ability to scale those learnings across all of your partners. So CreativeX technology and CreativeX tools are a way of helping you automate and streamline your creative decision-making process in a way that you can empower all of your content production teams and your content analytics teams to not only ensure that every piece of content you're producing automatically meets your quality, consistency, even your DNI best practices and goals, and then scale and empower all of your production partners to make sure that every bit of content is in line with the organizational goals. The other aspect of that is tying all of that to data. So you can start to see what is the impact of the decisions you're making on marketing performance. So your content production and your content decisions get better and better and more effective over time. If I were to put that in a layman terms and use a very simple example, is that the placement of the logo in the graphic or the video. I know that my team, when they come to me for quality control, I still forget it sometimes that, oh, why are we missing the logo in the images? Because we don't have any logo. I mean, how can we make sure people remember us? I suppose one of the, the creative acts can do is that making sure that that quality control that you prescribe in the expectation. I got someone delivering the stuff, maybe from Amazon. They know we were talking about it. <laughs> Sorry, coming back to where we are, is to make sure that that quality control is to make sure that whatever the expectation prescribed in the graphic output is always there. Would that be the right way to, to describe it as well? That's right. I think. Most brands will have a set of things that they have honed and learned over time that are the creative elements that really help them get their message across. And some of those things are things that are like a lot of brands will have a brand guidebook, right? Where they'll say, look, these are our colors. These are the characters that we use. These are our taglines. This is our sonic identity, et cetera, et cetera. Yet, when you have distributed teams working across the globe, you have dozens of agencies working for you, how do you ensure that that brand consistency doesn't get eroded? On the flip side, marketing has become a lot more data-driven, right? So a lot of decisions we make, we now measure. And so in a case like this, someone might have learned, hey, it's really important for me to have the logo in the first two seconds of my video because when I do that, view-through rate goes up. When I do that, click-through rate goes up, whatever metric you're optimizing for. But now that you've learned that, how do you ensure everyone on your team knows and leverages that same best practice across all your content? And if you're small enough, you know, at some point, you, know, you, can, you can turn around or quickly ping someone and say, hey, we've learned this, let's make sure you apply that. But as a marketer, there's so many things you have to keep in mind. What about every new person who joins? How do you basically maintain those standards and those learnings and apply them across every bit of content you create? Fundamentally, the problem isn't new. We have been doing versions of this probably since the very beginning as marketing, as marketers, learning and adapting and then applying those learnings to what we're doing. The problem now is we just cannot do that at scale because if, unless we want content quality checking to be our only job, 
we need to turn that over to technology. And that's what we're doing, right? It's trying to create technology that fundamentally learns what does excellent content mean to your brand and to your organization? Let us automate that for you and let us give you the tools to measure and scale that across your entire content output and across every partner who's involved in your content production process. I love it. So I suppose apart from that, what are the primary steps that should a brand or business take to embed analytics into the creative process then? Yeah, it's a really difficult question because a lot of this is actually not about sort of the hard science of it, but the soft management change required to start bridging these two sides that are often divided in a marketing team together. So typically what we see is the creative team and the analytics team will not sit together and won't really talk to each other. This is also typically exacerbated by the way that agencies tend to work, where you have creative agencies and you have media agencies, but they don't actually share the data with each other. So the first step that we've really learned and when we roll out this technology is to try and get everyone in the same room so we can align on the kinds of things that uh, creative people want to learn about their content and then map it to an analytics and learning agenda that we then roll out in tandem with the analytics and insights team. But fundamentally, it starts with a very simple question, which is, what does great content mean to your organization? Why is that great content? Is that because of it's a hypothesis? Is that because we know it? Is that because that's what we think looks good? And let's start to systematically measure those things and give you data back. We typically find that it's easiest to start with things that are non-controversial, i.e. logo, right? You can be the most visionary creative director in the world And chances are you're still going to think, okay, yeah, I probably need to have my logo there, right? And so we start with things that where people can understand the value of creative data without necessarily starting to feel that we are restricting their creative freedom because that's never the goal. The goal is not to get to a place where we're telling creative directors, hey, you need to put more blue here or this person's not smiling. That's not the vision. The vision is, how do we help you enforce your vision through technology and constantly refine it, whether that's from a performance point of view or simply from the point of view of, are you telling the story that you want to be telling? For example, we worked with a financial institution recently that said, we are the most diverse uh, lender. So we pride ourselves on having a really embedding diversity so that we make access to financial capital available to everyone. We analyzed their content and there were a couple of thousand pieces of content that we looked at. And I say this with sort of, this is not kind of a crazy anecdote that's been exaggerated. There is not a single person of color in any of the creatives that we've looked at. And so this is not about sort of marketing, but this is a question about, are you communicating what you think you're communicating? If one of your values is diversity, you don't have a single person of color. And again, I know diversity is much more than just about skin tone and skin color. Then are you saying what you think you're saying? And having the tools to help you quantify that across thousands, in many cases, hundreds of thousands of pieces of content becomes really important because it's about making sure that your creative vision is being articulated in the way that is aligned with your strategy. I still agree with that. And I think it's about that message that you are subconsciously sending out, i.e. are you really walking the talk or are you just talking the talk only? 
equally, I suppose the biggest challenge when it comes to measuring the analogy, like say, for example, if we were to use that example that you just described, it can be also very, very difficult to quantify the impact of it by including the people of color in the creativity. Now, that is important. But when it comes to certain quantification, those are the things that is becoming it really difficult to quantify, but yet they are so important. How do you convince or how do you work with all this brand to say, and now it can be very hard to quantify, or this is our way of quantifying it. That's why it is important. How do you solve yes, that? Yes, absolutely. I think you have to quantify it, especially when you're in a category like ours, which is relatively new. And this idea of, of mapping creative to performance data is not something that has been systematically done before. So what we do is we try and tie some of the high-level metrics that we're capturing back to media performance. So for every piece of content you run, our system collects cost data, CPMs, CPCs, et cetera, click data, conversion data, view through data, ad recall data, et cetera. And then what we do on our end is we look at what are the patterns between certain things going up or down or being present or not present in your content and some of the media performance metrics that we're capturing. And is that relationship statistically significant? Now, what we've learned over time is if we want to give you sustainable recommendations that stand the test of time, it's not about things like, you know, again, oh, people is good and like color red is bad or have more lemons in your content or whatever the case may be. And it's really about tying to those higher level concepts. So an example of a higher level concept we have is something we call creative quality score. So creative quality score is taking statistically validated best practices, which are should not be a hindrance to anyone's creative freedom. Is there a logo in it? Did you frame the ad correctly? Is it optimized for sound? Is your product in there? All of these, is there a call to action, right? Like very unsexy in some way things that have been proven to perform. And one of the things our system looks for is what happens to your marketing performance as your creative quality score goes up. So what we see is that for every 10% increase in creative quality score, there's a 2% decrease to CPM. There's a 2% increase in to ad recall and a 5% decrease to cost per view or an increase in view through rate. The average from about a million ads that we've analyzed, the average creative quality score of a piece of content is 20%. Meaning that for an average piece of content, they're only using 20% of these statistically validated best practices. And so the CPM gains, et cetera, they can make by starting to think about these best practices are really high. That's one example. Another example is something like brand consistency, right? Where we look at, here are all the things that make this piece of content specific to your brand. How many of them are you using? And we come up with a brand consistency score. And the goal is to help every brand we work with figure out what is the optimal level of branding that's required to increase your performance. It's up to you what that is. You know, that doesn't mean you have to have the color and the tagline and the logo and every asset. But maybe what that means is, hey, as long as you have two or three of those things, then you're doing really well from a marketing performance point of view. But you have the freedom to decide which of these tools you want to deploy at which time. Now, if the brand or the business who are to advertise and they look at a single piece at a time, 
the performance of the creativity often can also be impacted by the external factor. Say, for example, perhaps there happens to be a lot more people bidding on that period of time. That's why the problem is not as performing. How do you solve this problem where the external factors are taken into the account to a certain extent so that they know it is the internal factor, i.e. that is impacting the creativity score as a result and impacting the performance? Yes. And it's such a good question because that is one of the things that essentially drives me crazy about sort of the, the state of the industry we're in the moment is if you want to get these insights, you can't look at a single piece of content to get them because you cannot isolate what is it that is actually correlating to the performance gains or the output that you're seeing because it has gotten much cheaper to analyze a piece of content using computer vision technology. There are a lot of companies out there that are fundamentally selling what I would call is at best misleading and at worst just completely misrepresentative data and insights where they're saying, Hey, I've analyzed this one piece of content and it's got dogs. And so dogs increase your click-through rate. Um, people will then go and put more dogs in their content only to realize it doesn't work because that wasn't what was actually driving performance. So the only way to isolate those external variables and those externalities is by looking at a longitudinal sample of data where you can really start to hold constant all the other things happening around the piece of content. Basically, you need a large data set. And th that is the frustrating answer to this question, but it is the only true answer to this question. If you want to figure out what is it from a creative point of view that is having systematic and consistent correlation to performance, you need to look at things over time so you can isolate seasonality, you can isolate audience behaviors, you can isolate time of day, day of week, et cetera, and really focus on, hey, across all of this natural variation that's happening out there, what happens as the creative quality goes up? And is that driving sustainable performance impact? But the problem is that we want insights and we want them now, right? And B, I think this is where sort of bad actors in an industry tend to bring down the whole thing because there is this view of, hey, we, we can look at one piece of content and tell you exactly what's working. And that's simply not the case. It happens in every industry. <laughs> it's true. Now, my next question then is, with all these metrics and all the score that you're collecting for them, what does it mean for the marketing team or the business to embed this analytic into the whole creative process then? Well, it means that now you can really start to, you basically have a common language around how you talk about creative effectiveness and creative efficiency, right? Once this gets embedded in, what tends to happen is every creative you have has a score around it, which is tied to your organizational specific definition of what does good quality content look like. Every production partner is able to test their content through our system before it goes live to make sure it's consistent with that brand's branding, it's leveraging all their latest best practices and all the things that they've learned. It also means that, again, you have a near real-time influx of data that tells you that this is the correlation between the creative decisions you're making and marketing performance. And so you can really start to think about how do I make all my content work harder for me? Marketers spend millions, if not billions of dollars on content production, and then the media to actually deploy that content to users. And yet 
the majority of that content is not fit to succeed because it's not utilizing any of the basic elements to make it, to make it work. And so by embedding this in, what we're fundamentally doing is stopping that problem. We're giving you tools by which we can say, hey, this piece of content doesn't have a chance to really be seen or heard because it's not leveraging these things that we have statistically proven constantly work. You need to go back. You need to fix it before you actually put any money behind it. Now, as they learn more about their creative from the data on what perform or not perform, how do you build a feedback for them to fine-tune the works in a way that anyone who is involved in that creative process, they can actually report their finding or their learning and then subsequently get shared across the organization. And especially in the organization where they are regional leader or their global company, how do those learning get shared across the board then? Yes. Well, one of the things that we love is that the tools that we've built are equally used by the creative teams as much as they are by the media and analytics teams. And so, first of all, it all starts with giving everyone access to the same data. Typically, the media teams and the analytics teams had all this performance data, and the creative teams had their content, right? But what we're doing is sort of saying, hey, you can have access to all of it. So the creative team can actually go in and see, this is the content I've put together. Here are learnings about that content. Here's what percentage of content has a high branded score versus a low branded score. Going back to our example about representation and diversity, here's the percentage of content that has diverse talent featured in versus content that doesn't. And how do those decisions tie back to marketing performance? That performance data is updated every 24 hours. So you can constantly get access to the latest information that helps you inform future content decisions. We also have something in our product that we are tentatively calling creative hypotheses, which is a way for both creative teams and media teams to say, I've got this question that I haven't been able to answer yet. Like, should I make my content product-led or lifestyle-led? And we can set up that tracking for you and start collecting that data without using that to inform the scoring of your content. So then you can get this data first before you say, okay, you know what? Our new creative direction is going to lean more towards a lifestyle-centered creative style. So it's part of, I wish again, there was sort of a magical answer, but the reality is you just have to continue fusing data into the process. Some of it we do through tools. I think where our team could do a much better job um, doing this is continue taking our marketing teams on the journey with us and showing them how they can actually incorporate this data into things like the next creative brief that they write. And that's one of the things we're working on right now. Have you, or is that something that you have already done, i.e. incorporating the neuroscience as a way of benchmarking for the creativity asset? Say, for example, I think the people of color, I think is a classic and a great example. If I see a remarketing ad that with someone look a bit like myself, perhaps I would be more likely to click and to continue where I was left at then, as opposed to a generic ad that, so, yeah. Yes. So we are not a neuroscience company ourselves, but we are actually in the process of partnering. And I, I can't say much more about this right now because it hasn't been finalized yet, of partnering with a company in the neuroscience space who uses neuroscience data to try and measure and quantify attention. And we're actually trying to combine their data with our data to see how do some of the things that we measure 
map to their measure of attention, right? So ultimately, we know that when it comes to creative analytics, we're just one type of data. And so the way that we see the evolution of our product is very much through a partnership and ecosystem-based way where we're partnering with these other types of players in the creative technology ecosystem and starting to fuse our data together so we can give brands a very comprehensive look as to even things like, hey, when you do this, here's how that even maps to things like liking the ad or paying attention to the ad or finding it funny or whatever the case may be. I think one of the things that I have learn it in a, perhaps in a hard way is that for this sort of the analytic that we are talking about, I think it probably will only make sense when you have an extremely, extremely large data set or extremely, extremely data to look at. For a small company, say, for example, when I was still trying to, to run the e-commerce, I was extremely small, but then I tried to do all these things. It makes no sense because whatever the, the data that I collected would never be material enough to make any sense of it. So I suppose the question for you then is, what is the, if we were to going to use a number, a revenue number, or what would be the revenue number that a company should be making, or maybe in terms of the other uh, metrics that they should be using to start making sense to look at all of these and incorporate that into their creativity process, including like, for example, the neuroscience stuff. So I can't really speak to the neuroscience because I know that that does tend to be more expensive and I'm, I'm less familiar with the kind of the costing structure for that. But you're in some ways, you're right that if you're going to start testing custom creative hypotheses, you need a rich data set to enable you to do that. That said, the correlation we found between a high creative quality score and lower CPMs, higher ad recall, lower cost per views is an analysis that's based on a trillion impressions over a billion in ad spend. And something that we believe will continue to stand the test of statistical validity and applicability when you map it down to some of the smallest brands and advertisers out there. So yes, there are things that will be custom to you and you need a large data set, but there are also things that are starting to take shape and become more and more, I don't want to use the word accepted because it's not up to us to accept them, but certainly more validated as industry-wide best practices that you should be doing regardless of the size and revenue that you put through as a company. But assuming they have access to that benchmark data though, if they don't, that it would be very difficult for them to apply and understand that whole idea of whatever is accept or whatever is good practice or not good practice. And this is where, luckily, we are not the only ones in the industry who've done some of this validation. So when we look at the big platform partners, Facebook, Google, Twitter, et cetera, they have also done lots of metadata analysis, looking at you know studies of probably millions, if not billions of, of data points in aggregate that tie some of the things that we're talking about to consistent enhancements in marketing performance. And so at some point, every company, and I think this is right, wants to make sure that whatever best practices are being touted by an industry are going to work for them. And I completely understand the desire to do that. However, I always talk to my team about not reinventing the wheel where it doesn't need to be reinvented. 
So there are some places where, yes, you want to ignore everything that's been said or done and figure out the way that works for you. And there are other places where even having a baseline to start from is going to make massive gains in your performance. So what I would say to every smaller company that doesn't have the budget of a, of a Unilever or a PepsiCo is if you're trying to get your content to perform at a baseline level from which you can then start to micro-optimize from, make sure that content has a high quality score to start with because there is a lot of data at a very high confidence interval that tells you that some of these basics are very significantly correlated with better marketing performance. So I presume what you guys do at the Creative X, that creative analytic can be applied to both of the digital assets in the online space, as well as the digital assets in the more traditional media channels, such as TV or maybe radio, et cetera, as well? Yes and no. It definitely anything digital is, I'm going to say easy for lack of a better word, because there is a programmatic way to get all the performance data. Things like television and radio and banners outside your house and all of that, you can still make sure to track things for like brand consistency and things like that. But to have the same feedback loop of tying those things back to performance is more difficult because performance for things like typically, and again, this is changing in certain areas, is tied to longer term branding impact. So, and there is, to the best of our knowledge, no programmatic way to get sort of near real time brand lift studies embedded in. And so that's the problem with stuff like television and radios. The feedback loop is actually a lot more drawn out than for digital, where it's almost real time. On a separate note, I think this is not relevant to what we discussed in terms of the creative analytic. But I'm curious to know your thought that as the global marketing spend is shifting more and more digital landscape, and I think partly it's because Facebook, Google, all of these are more trackable, right? And, and because it's more trackable, we also equally have something to sell to our boss that what is working, <laughs> what is not working. Yeah, it's really important. Yes, absolutely. Exactly. But at the same time, I also feel like the marketing content is becoming shifting towards to more of the direct response marketing these days. Do you think we, we will soon be missing out those big budget ads from the old days? Yes. And I think the industry as a whole, you know, you can see two camps really fighting this, right? There are a lot of people, Orlando Wood is, is an example of someone here in the UK who's really been advocating against this move towards entirely direct response. Because actually, and he's done a lot of work on this, more academic research work that demonstrates that your direct response improves when you have strong branding that is recognizable. So if we move away too much and start to forget about concepts like brand, the reality is marketing performance suffers. What we're seeing, at least in some of the conversations that we're having, is less of a move towards direct response, but more of a desire to want to get more real-time metrics of brand measurement. And this view of what some people are, <laughs> probably for lack of a better word, calling brand response, right? How do you sort of meet somewhere in the middle? 
right? Yes, performance is important. And you want to make sure that to your point, you know, you have data to show your, your boss and your team to prove that the things you're doing are working or not working. But you also want to make sure that fundamentally you are building up this long-term asset, which is your brand. And how you do those two together, I, I don't think anyone knows. But certainly for us, what we've tried to do is to show you through a data-driven lens that as you make some of these longer-term investments in things like creative quality and things like brand consistency, marketing performance improves, even at that very granular level, like view-through rate or cost per thousand impressions or things like that, because those are typically more direct response metrics. I read some of the very interesting research that has been done at CreativeX recently, such as analyzing the Super Bowl ads or US election campaign and the 190 Hennigan campaign. Now to find out the, all of those data back inside for creating the best possible creative recipe. So in what way the mid-sized to smaller brand can make such a creative analytics? If small and mid-sized brands want to start taking a stab into creative analytics, there are two things we can do. One is start leveraging existing best practice to drive the performance up of your content. The most common ones are, again, make sure you brand really early, especially for video assets. Make sure you have your product in the first couple of seconds. Make sure your ad is sized correctly and you're actually using all the real estate that you have. You would be surprised at how many times we see horizontal ads and vertical ad spaces and vice versa, where you're literally leaving real estate on the table that could be used to deliver your message, especially given that a lot of times we are consuming content on a screen that is the size of our hand. So if you're not using all the real estate, you're wasting space. Make sure that you've got a concise, uh, both concise message as well as shorter oftentimes is better, especially across digital. And for direct response, there always has to be a clear and a single call to action. Now, those things alone, I would say if most companies implement those things, based on the research that we've done, they're likely to see performance gains. If a company wants to say, okay, great, like those are the basics, but how do I really go deeper? Our view is you have to start making creative hypotheses, writing them down and systematically testing them. If you are at a size where, you know, a tool that does that is not in your budget, then I think there, you have to throw brute force at it, right? It's basically kind of going back to those old days of Hatch and what we did, which is where we took all that content we try to objectively categorize that content into buckets, i.e. this content has people and this one doesn't, or this content is following creative direction A and this content is following creative direction B, and then combine that with performance data and start to start to see what is the difference between those things you're measuring and the performance of it. This obviously brings us to talking about A-B testing. And A-B testing is really important uh, to your example earlier about how do you not draw incorrect conclusions. The only thing I would say is that if you are doing creative A-B testing, make sure that you are setting it up in a way where you have essentially the same creative where there's only one variable that's changed so you can make sure you're taking insight away from that that really maps to what you're measuring. I think I have learned enough about the creative analytics, and I think I have a really good understanding of it now. So thank you so much for that. My final question for you on this topic is, would you please share with us some real-life example or use cases that connecting the creative analytics to the actual business result? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you mentioned Heineken. We've done some work with them where we analyzed about 150 campaigns. We looked at, they had, I believe, about 14 different creative hypotheses that we measured in their content. We then were able to find four that were statistically significant at driving not only better brand that we could tie to revenue, Heineken then went out and said, hey, this is part of our new framework for how we think about great content and rolled them out to all of their brand teams and creative teams. As a result of that, these four new best practices that have been implemented in scale across Heineken have had, and we unfortunately can't say the number, but have had a meaningful impact all the way down to revenue and sales that they can connect. There are versions of this from a lot of different companies that we worked at. Take a company like like Unilever. You know, Unilever, when we first started working with them three years ago, had a much lower creative quality score that we were able to essentially first double and then triple over the, the year and a half, the first year and a half of working with them, which meant that they have virtually saved millions of dollars from being put on content that was not set up for success and not leveraging their best practices now to a place where all of their money is officially deployed behind content that is more likely to work because we are embedded into their creative production process. I love it. Now we're almost at the end of this podcast interview. I got two last questions for you. Number one, what is your most important first principle? I really struggle with that question. Just because I think there's so many of them that sort of go together. I think fundamentally, if I had to choose one thing, something that I think about a lot is that the success of anything is really based on people. So I think one of the things that I try and do my best to remember and apply is the the necessity of being human and assuming good intent in those around you. I think once you, if you continue to apply a degree of empathy to all the people that you work with, I think chances are oftentimes that you can deliver good results. Got me thinking. I have to think a little bit deeper about that. (laughs) My last question is, what is one book that you have read and thought it would have been better for your younger self to have? I haven't had that experience. What I've had is a little bit different where I have reread a number of books as I've gotten older. And as I've reread them, I've gotten a lot more out of them as I've been able to appreciate it. So, and a lot of them are actually some of the classics, you know, you read them in school and you kind of gloss over them because your high school English teachers making you read them. And so two books that I actually have tried to reread every couple of years are The Great Gatsby, which is really about a man's pursuit of status and wealth and what that brings. And I think, again, I saw it as a love story when I was younger. And I think obviously there, there, there's still elements of it that are a love story, but I think it's about something much bigger than that, right? I think it's about this this search for like acceptance and status and which is often ties to, to wealth. And then another book that I've reread a, a number of times is East of Eden as well by John Steinbeck, which is again, sort of a book about a familial saga and all the transformation that happens within And I'm just always amazed at how many things you miss when you reread that book. So there's nothing that I would have wanted to give my younger self other than 
a deeper level of understanding to be able to appreciate them the way that I probably do right now. I agree. And sometimes we probably have a different interpretation for exactly the same thing when we read a different period of our time as well. Yeah. Thank you so much, Anastasia, for this wonderful podcast interview. I learned so much about creative analytics and I, I will make sure I apply some of those things. And once again, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.